Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 132, The Gibraltar of North America. Hi, I'm Jake. Nikki's out this week. I'll be talking about an astonishing 1745 military victory won by a Massachusetts volunteer army made up of farmers, seamen, and merchants. After war broke out with France the year before, Governor William Shirley proposed a daring plan to attack the French fortress of Louisbourg. Located on Cape Breton Island off the coast of Nova Scotia, Louisbourg was considered impregnable. Through a combination of luck, good leadership, and gallant conduct, the New England army conquered the Gibraltar of North America. However, the victory was short-lived, setting the stage for two wars that American history remembers more clearly. But before I talk about the 1745 siege at Lewisburg, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week harkens back to a past episode. Back in episode 28, we talked about the 1919 Boston police strike. And if you want to get much more detail about the strike than our show got into, you can start with A City in Terror, Calvin Coolidge and the 1919 Boston Police Strike by Francis Russell. Originally published in 1975, the story starts with, of all things, the author's personal memories of his father being pressed into service as a temporary special policeman when the regular police department went out on strike. His duty mostly consisted of directing traffic on Blue Hill Avenue as the outlying neighborhoods of Mattapan and Dorchester where he grew up didn't see the chaos and lawlessness that happened downtown. After sharing the hazy memories of a nine-year-old, Russell settles down into a serious treatment of the strike. He gives a brief history of the Boston Police Department, describes the complaints that led the officers to form a union, and gives an overview of the political landscape of Massachusetts and Boston at the time that had thrust Calvin Coolidge to prominence. Then come the riots and the aftermath. The publisher's description gives a hint at the author's focus. On September 9, 1919, an American nightmare came true. The entire Boston police force deserted their posts, leaving the city virtually defenseless. Women were raped on street corners, stores were looted, and pedestrians were beaten and robbed while crowds not only looked on, but cheered. The police strike and the mayhem that followed made an inconspicuous governor, Calvin Coolidge, known throughout America, turning him into a national hero and, eventually, a president. It also created a monster. For two days, more than 700,000 residents of Boston's urban core were without police protection, and the mob ruled the streets. Whether or not you believe, as Russell did, that the Boston police strike proves that public employees should have no right to organize, the book gives a deeper look at an often overlooked chapter in American history. With the centennial of the strike coming up in September, this is the perfect time to brush up on what happened. You can find a link to purchase the book in our show notes this week. And for our upcoming event, we have a lunchtime author talk by past podcast guest Christian Despina. Christian is author of Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero, and he joined us back in episode 103. He'll be appearing at the Boston Athenaeum on May 28th. Here's how the Athenaeum describes it. Christian Despina's definitive new biography of Warren is a loving work of historical excavation the product of two decades of research and scores of newly unearthed primary source documents that have given us this forgotten founding father anew. Following Warren from his farming childhood and years at Harvard, through his professional success and political radicalization, to his role in sparking the rebellion, Despina's thoughtful, judicious retelling not only restores Warren to his rightful place in the pantheon of revolutionary greats, it deepens our understanding of the nation's dramatic beginnings. The talk begins at 12 p.m. on Tuesday, May 28th. Advanced registration is required. You'll have to pay your way into the Athenaeum, but there's no additional fee for the talk. We'll have a link to the details you need in the show notes. Before we kick off the show for real, we just want to say thank you to everyone who has supported us on Patreon. We put a lot of time and effort into researching the show every week, and we want to make sure our podcast recordings are at least as good as our research is. The folks who support us on Patreon help offset the costs of the tools we use to bring you the show, our audio processing software, our podcast feed host, and our website hosting and security. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us keep delivering the best podcast we know how. As a token of our appreciation, anyone who gives $5 per month or more is invited to a monthly video chat with us, 
And anyone who supports us at the $10 level will be invited to take a tour of the Back Bay led by us in September. If you want to help offset the cost of making Hub History, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. At the height of King George's War in 1745, 3,000 volunteer Massachusetts troops and another 1,000 from the other New England colonies sailed to the strongest French fortress on the continent and laid siege to it. Britain and France had been arguing over who owned Cape Breton Island for over a century before the 1745 siege, and King George's War was the third major war between the French and English along the Atlantic coast of New England and Canada at that time. King George's War was the American extension of the War of Austrian Succession that was raging in Europe. In Europe, the great powers were fighting over the right of the Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa to take the throne of the vast Austrian Empire. In North America, the French and the English were fighting over land, because the treaty ending Queen Anne's War 30 years before had left their competing claims unsettled. New England colonists believed that Cape Breton Island had been granted to them in the 1620 charter creating the Plymouth Colony. Thomas Prince, the minister at Old South Church, believed that the 1691 charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony reconfirmed that Cape Breton Island belonged to New England. The island belonged originally to the British Empire, was at first comprised in the general name and grand patent of New England in 1620, but in the following year set off and included in Nova Scotia by a separate patent, and since in Nova Scotia comprehended in the Royal Charter of the Massachusetts Province in 1691. A group of Scots even started a short-lived colony on the island in the 1620s, but in 1632, a treaty turned the island over to France. In the meantime, the Mi'kmaq, who were the original inhabitants of the island, never recognized the sovereignty of any European government. And after France took over, the last European settlement on the island was abandoned by the 1660s. A 1914 address by Frederick Heidekoper at the Society of Colonial Wars describes how another treaty soon brought the English back to the doorstep of Cape Breton Island. By the Peace of Utrecht, signed on April 11, 1713, France ceded to England Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and the Hudson Bay Territory. In other words, all of Acadia with the exception of the little island known as Cape Breton, on which was situated Louisbourg. The conflict known as Queen Anne's War was thus brought to a close. Many British subjects, and especially the settlers of New England, viewed the treaty terms as a betrayal. Thomas Prince again wrote, I remember while in England, when we came to know the Tory ministry had by the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713 resigned it to the French, all true-hearted Britons who knew the circumstance of the island most grievously lamented the resignation, as full of teeming mischief to the British trade, wealth, and power, and as one of the most fatal acts of that unhappy ministry. Losing all their mainland possessions on the Atlantic coast, the French realized that they had to fortify Cape Breton Island to protect the entrance to the St. Lawrence River which was the gateway to Quebec and their valuable North American colony. At a natural harbor, they built a heavily fortified town, adding a series of outlying batteries on the outskirts of town and on an island in the harbor, and eventually also building a lighthouse on the opposite shore. Thomas Prince records one of the valuable resources available in Cape Breton. It abounds in the best of pit coal known in America, and so near the surface of the earth and coast of the sea as to be very easily dug and put in vessels. Yea, from 1703, Lahontan had told us of the French ships loading with and carrying the same to Guadeloupe and Martinique for the refining of sugars, to their great advantage. More than coal, however, the island was vital to France's commercial fishing grounds in the banks, and it posed a mortal threat to the fishing grounds claimed by Britain. Because of the threat to New England fishing interests, an audacious plan to invade and Reduce Louisbourg was anonymously submitted to the British Ministry in January of 1744. By some coincidence, it's almost identical to the plan that William Shirley eventually put into action. The next necessary consideration respecting the trade and fishery of Newfoundland is, in my humble apprehension, how to secure it against the French. And I think there can be no way of doing it effectually but by regaining the island of Breton from the French. And in order thereto, tis proposed that five ships of fifty guns each, with one or two old regiments, and proper artillery and warlike stores, should be sent from hence to Boston so early in the spring as to sail from thence, the 20th of April, 1745, for Cape Breton. 
that being as soon or sooner than any vessels can arrive there from France. That orders should forthwith be sent to all our North American colonies, more especially New England and New York, directing the governors there to make immediate preparation by raising men and disciplining of them, to be in readiness for an expedition on the arrival of the said five men of war from hence at Boston. That the men so raised should be commanded by some of His Majesty's experienced officers. That the officers under them, in their respective regiments, should be gentlemen of the country. That the troops be subsisted by their respective provinces. And that they be paid by His Majesty, as His regular troops here are. That these troops leave Boston so as to reach the island of Breton by the time the five men of war may lay off it at sea in order to make an attack at once both by sea and land. And as there are no cannon commanding the entrance to Gabaros Bay, which is within four miles of the rampart of Louisburg, the men of war, with the fleet, may safely ride there, and will prevent any assistance to the place by sea, while the troops by land do the like, so that by want of provisions may probably oblige them to surrender the place soon. Some smaller nimble men of war, or sloops, full of men might at the same time be usefully employed in cruising the banks of Newfoundland and off the coast of North America, as well to secure our own as to annoy the French trade, and particularly to prevent their correspondence from old France to the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Quebec. For otherwise, they will probably annoy our North American settlements from thence and instigate the Indians on the back of us to disturb our people and draw them from the design against Cape Breton. That fear of Indian attacks on British settlements in the Northeast wasn't an idle one. From the 1680s through the 1720s, the French and their Wabanaki allies had launched a series of four offensives against English towns in Nova Scotia, across the Massachusetts county of Maine, and into Massachusetts proper. In each case, Isle Royale, or Cape Breton Island, had been a stronghold to fall back on. Thomas Prince was a minister, not some bloodthirsty rogue militia captain. So for him to wish for a war against France, in order to have an excuse to seize Louisbourg, shows just how widely held beliefs like that were in New England at this time. So pernicious a settlement was this, that for above these twenty years it has seemed to me twere worthwhile to engage in a war with France, if twere for nothing else but to recover this most important island to the British Empire. Though a war was dreadful, the necessity and hazard seemed every year to increase. The longer twas deferred, the more powerful and dangerous they grew, and the less our hope of their being ever reduced. Heidecoper describes how hostilities in Europe gave French and British colonists in North America a perfect pretext under which to continue their conflict over territories along the seacoast, with Louisbourg at the center of the action. The struggle for dominion in North America resulted in a renewal of hostilities in 1744 that lasted until 1748, known as King George's War, which was in reality a part of the War of the Austrian Succession. When Frederick the Great began the Second Silesian War in 1744 by invading Bohemia and capturing Prague, he started the blaze in the Western Hemisphere to which both the French and the English colonists seemed only too ready to add their quota of fuel. An anonymous letter from a French resident of Louisbourg, which I'll be quoting from extensively, shows how the governor of Ile Royale, as the French called Cape Breton, planned a preemptive attack on the English at Canso, Nova Scotia. And I'll just preemptively apologize for my pronunciation of all the French names this week. The ambition of Monsieur de Cousnel was to distinguish himself against the English. To realize this noble and daring design, he armed a schooner of 14 guns and a bateau, upon which he put about 600 men, soldiers, and sailors, to go first and seize the little island of Canso. This was to be the signal of a breach with our neighbors, the English. His force soon came back victorious. The enterprise, so much belauded, was in truth not worthy of our attention. We did not gain what it cost. The English established upon this little island were indeed without the least defense. They did not know that we were at war with their nation, for we had been the first to hear the declaration. They did not even suspect that they might be attacked. The island, moreover, was not fortified, the English having never taken any trouble to strengthen it. Some of her subjects had built a wretched town, which we burned. This raid was carried out in May of 1744 with about 140 French marines and 215 Mi'kmaq militiamen sailing from Louisbourg in 17 ships. The raid caught the English residents of Canso completely by surprise as they didn't know yet about the state of war that existed between France and England back in Europe. The French looted what they could, loaded many English residents on their ships as prisoners, 
and then burned the town. Back in Lewisburg, the English were given fairly free reign to roam the town because there was just no prison large enough to hold them. Among those taken prisoner in Canso was John Bradstreet, who was an officer in the 40th Regiment of Foot. During his unsupervised time in Lewisburg, Bradstreet developed detailed plans of the city's defenses and worked out possible avenues for a future attack. Soon the expense of feeding all these English prisoners became too great, and the French paroled them to Boston. Upon arriving, Bradstreet took his intelligence and battle plan straight to the governor of Massachusetts. Governor William Shirley was still fairly new to his job at this point. Back in England, he'd been a politically connected noble, but his moderate inheritance had run out fast while raising eight children and living a lavish lifestyle. He came to Massachusetts in 1731 and used his political contacts to secure a cushy job as an advocate general at the Admiralty Court. He then spent the next decade undermining the administration of Governor Jonathan Belcher and positioning himself as a logical replacement. He got his wish in 1741 when he was appointed as royal governor of Massachusetts. King George's War would be his trial by fire. Along with his plans for the city's fortifications, Bradstreet was able to provide valuable intelligence about the disposition of its defenders. At the time, there were about 700 French regulars stationed in the town, with about a thousand more men who would make up a militia in case of an attack. However, their fighting effectiveness was not as impressive as the numbers would suggest. The town was chronically undersupplied, and there were even shortages of basics like food and clothes. In the winter of 1744 to 1745, morale reached an all-time low. After the raid on Canso, many French soldiers believed they'd been promised a share of the spoils, but officers kept everything. The troops were hungry, their back pay was being withheld, and now they weren't sharing in the spoils of war. In December, the tensions boiled over into open mutiny, with ethnically Swiss companies leading the rebellion. Our friend inside Lewisburg says... The day after Christmas, that of the Festival of St. Stephen, the Swiss revolted and had the insolence to come out without officers, drums beating, bayonets fixed, and swords in hand. The officers who tried to restrain them were bitterly enraged at this, and the matter reached such a point that those who wished to approach them were aimed at, and very nearly lost their lives. They would certainly have done so if prudence had not been used. The French soldiers were as bad and mutinied also. The new governor, Duchambon, barely managed to get the garrison back under control by opening royal storehouses to distribute money and supplies. Believing the defenders at Lewisburg wouldn't stand and fight, Governor Shirley proposed an invasion. A direct attack on the fortified harbor would be suicide, so he planned to land a force outside the range of the French guns, march them over land, and lay siege from the land side. He convinced a narrow majority of the Massachusetts Great and General Court to support an invasion of Cape Breton Island and an attack on the fortress at Lewisburg. On January 29th, by a single vote, they passed a measure authorizing the governor to raise a force of 4,000 volunteers. The French residents of Lewisburg found it odd that a colonial governor would have the latitude to essentially declare war on a neighboring country, as our letter writer points out. The enterprise was less that of the nation or of the king than of the inhabitants of New England alone. These singular people have a system of laws and of protection peculiar to themselves, and their governor carries himself like a monarch. So much is this the case that although war was already declared between the two crowns, he himself declared it against us of his own right and in his own name, as if it was necessary that he should give his warrant to his master. Having issued the order, Governor Shirley now had to raise and equip an army. With a promise of hard currency for enlisting and a share in the spoils of war, volunteers began streaming in from Boston and around the province. Most of these were purely raw troops, men who had never served in a martial capacity beyond maybe the annual militia drills in their hometowns. They needed training and discipline, but first, they needed basic equipment like guns. Shirley ordered that the town of Boston turn over muskets belonging to the town that were intended for the defense of Boston if it should ever be attacked. The Boston selectmen were not eager to obey an order that would leave them defenseless against a French counteroffensive, writing the following letter in early March of 1745. To His Excellency the Governor, humbly represent the subscribers, selectmen of the town of Boston, that the said arms should ever after be kept for the use of the inhabitants, 
and in case of any of them being lost or becoming useless, the number should be kept up by others of equal goodness being supplied in their stead. The selectmen being informed that your excellency has granted a warrant for the impressing of said arms, they think themselves bound in faithfulness to the town to represent to your excellency that they apprehend the carrying of said arms out of the town may leave it too much exposed in this time of war, as great numbers of their inhabitants are destitute of arms and unable to purchase them. And they therefore humbly pray your excellency that said warrant or order for impressing may be recalled and that the said arms may remain for the use of the inhabitants, according to the intent and design of the donor. Governor Shirley's reply was curt and to the point. Boston, March 15, 1744. His Majesty's service and the general interest of the province will not permit me to recall my warrant, the impressed arms being indispensably necessary to the service of the expedition against Cape Breton. Signed, W. Shirley. The town seems to have immediately given up on the arms Shirley was taking. As soon as the selectmen informed the town meeting what had happened, town records say, After some debate, it was voted that the selectmen be and hereby are desired forthwith to apply to the government or the committee of war to obtain of them the full value of the said firearms. And upon receiving the same, they are also desired to purchase a like number of good firearms and bayonets in the cheapest and best manner they can. With his new recruits and his borrowed muskets, Shirley had the beginnings of an army. Now he needed a navy. Having written to the British commander of naval forces in the West Indies, stationed at Jamaica, the governor waited for confirmation that the Royal Navy would be able to back his attack on Louisbourg. Without help from the navy, the lightly armed provincial vessels would have little protection against any French warships that might come to the aid of Louisbourg. At first, Commodore Peter Warren denied this request, saying that he didn't have the authority to dispatch a fleet without orders from the Admiralty. Shirley received notice of this decision the day before his invasion force departed Boston, and he kept the news to himself. The force that sailed out of Boston Harbor consisted of about 90 ships, carrying 304 New Hampshire troops, 516 from Connecticut, and 3,250 recruits from Massachusetts, including the county that's Maine today. Rhode Island sent an armed ship, New York provided 10 cannons, and the Jerseys in Pennsylvania provided funding. The army was led by a prominent merchant named William Pepperell. Pepperell was a politician, and he'd served in the militia, but he had no previous experience leading troops in combat. John Bradstreet, the mastermind of the expedition, was enlisted as a lieutenant colonel. After sailing north, most of the Massachusetts fleet rendezvoused in the harbor of the ruined town of Canso, Nova Scotia, on April 4th. They would tarry there for about three weeks, building a new fort, drilling in military maneuvers, and waiting for the ice flows to clear from around Lewisburg. On the day they arrived, William Shirley announced a fast day in their honor back in Boston. For as much as this government has, with great expense and labor, raised and fitted out a large body of troops— and equipped a considerable naval force for an expedition against the French at Cape Breton, which forces are now, through the favor of divine providence, embarked, and have taken their departure from this place. And forasmuch as all our hopes of success in this important enterprise ought to be placed in the gracious presence of Almighty God, to give wisdom and conduct to our officers, and resolution and courage both to officers and soldiers, to preserve our forces from sickness and other disasters, and to govern all accidents and occurrences so as to render them favorable to our designs, and as it is our indispensable duty by prayer and supplication with penitent confession of our sins earnestly to implore the gracious interposition of divine providence, that it would please God to be on our side and fight our battles and grant us success and victory. I have therefore thought fit with the advice of His Majesty's Council to appoint Thursday, the fourth day of April next, to be observed throughout this province as a day of fasting and prayer. Luckily, the day after Commodore Warren denied Shirley's request, he got new orders from London, authorizing him to take part in the expedition to Cape Breton. Finally, Shirley had good news to share with the provincial legislature. I have also received a letter from Commodore Warren, dated the 12th instant, he being then near Cape Sable and proceeding to join our fleet at Canso, or if they should be gone from thence, to meet them off Louisbourg, to assist the expedition against that place. 
The cheerfulness and zeal with which Mr. Warren undertakes this service, and the great concern he has for the success of it, and the prosperity of these provinces so much depending thereon, which you will find by his letter, a copy whereof I shall lay before you, greatly recommends him to our respect and affections. With the Royal Navy now part of the flotilla, Warren dispatched three ships to prowl outside Lewisburg Harbor and prevent any resupply or reinforcements from reaching the city. The anonymous letter from within the town describes their arrival. On the 14th of March, we saw the first hostile ships. There were as yet only two, and at first we took them for French vessels, but the maneuvers soon undeceived us. Their number increased day by day, and ships continued to arrive until the end of May. Finally, on April 29th, the wind shifted, and the ice flows drifted out to sea. That night, the invasion force set sail for Lewisburg. It's worth describing the immense fortifications that the Massachusetts troops and their Royal Navy escort faced upon their arrival. A paper presented before the Royal Society of Canada in 1887 gives the lay of the land, with a crescent-shaped harbor surrounded by three immense batteries of French guns and the most heavily fortified city in North America overlooking it all. This harbor is close upon the Atlantic. In half an hour, a ship passes from a tempestuous ocean to a haven of perfect security. The harbor winds inland to a distance of six miles from its mouth. It has a width at the narrowest part of about a half a mile. The average depth of the water is from six to eight fathoms. The harbor is spacious enough to hold the entire British fleet. Across its mouth, there stretches from the shore on the left of the entrance towards that on the right a belt of low, rocky islets, protecting the harbor from the waters of the Atlantic. This belt extends within a quarter mile of the high and rugged coast on the right. The only ship entrance is between the furthest islet of this belt and the shore on the right. On passing into the harbor, the coastline on the left is found to recede, so as to form a cove. From the shore of the cove, the ground rises gently to a moderate height and this spot was selected for the fort, which fronted the water of the cove. The ground consisted of an area of 100 acres. For the five and twenty years next following this election, the best engineering talent of Europe was employed in the construction of the fort and its appendages. Around the central area, a wall or rampart of stone was raised to the height of from 30 to 36 feet. The wall was over two miles and a half in length. A ditch of 80 feet in width encompassed the walls. The central area was laid off in regular blocks, the streets crossing each other at right angles. Besides barracks, magazines, and hospitals for military purposes, the French authorities erected a government house, an opera house, a theater, and other secular buildings appertaining to a capital city, as also churches and other religious edifices. In the construction of the fort and city, they spent over 30 millions of livres, they made it the strongest fortress on this continent and thought it impregnable. Besides the fort itself, there were outlying posts of great strength. A powerful battery on one of the low islets we have mentioned in the mouth of the harbor commanded the narrow ship entrance between it and the shore on the right. And far up the harbor on a lofty hill facing the entrance stood the Grand Battery with an armament of the heaviest guns. It also commanded the ship entrance. Thus, Lewisburg, strong in itself, with two immense batteries commanding the harbor's entrance, towered proudly in these northern waters, and was the terror of the English colonies from the Strait of Canso to the mouth of the Hudson. The English had long considered Lewisburg to be invincible, and the facts on the ground seemed to bear that out. Somehow, an army made up of inexperienced Massachusetts volunteers, an army that was so ill-prepared that it had to borrow Boston's reserve supply of muskets— was planning to lay siege to the greatest fortress in North America. And shockingly, they would succeed. When the sun rose on April 30th, 1745, the French garrison was surprised to see a large New England fleet gathered directly under their noses. In fact, they'd been so comfortable that most of their officers attended a party the night before, and they only slept a few hours before the invasion force was discovered. It would be impossible to sail directly into the Lewisburg Harbor, so instead, Pepperell and Warren chose Gabarus Bay as their destination, about five miles southwest of the fort. After a feint distracted a force of about a hundred defenders who had been sent to meet them, the New Englanders established a beachhead about two miles from Lewisburg, as described in a letter from one of the officers in the invasion force. The French were no ways apprised of our intended invasion till they saw our whole fleet of transports coming. 
When they found we were coming to land, they marched down about 200 men to oppose us. We had but 100 landed under Colonel Gorham, who did not stay to draw up and form, but surrounded the French and kept popping at them, killed four or five and wounded several, and took a great many of them prisoners, some of them being persons of distinction, and the rest took to their heels. This day and the next, being May 1st, all the men were landed in high spirits and a great many prisoners brought in every day and tis said many Swiss and French daily desert and come over to us. In landing, we had two men wounded. The French say our men fight like devils. By sunset on the second day, over 2,000 New Englanders had landed on the shores of Gabarus Bay. James Gibson, a sea captain who lived on Beacon Hill, volunteered for the Lewisburg adventure, raising a company of 300 men. His diary of the engagement begins with their continued success the next morning. Wednesday, May 1st. Our troops marched toward the Grand Battery and set fire to ten houses, the inhabitants being fled into the city. The flames so surprised the soldiers in the aforesaid battery that both they and their captain made the best of their way by water into the city. This was the Grand, or Royal Battery, which had been at the heart of Governor Shirley's plan for the siege. In his orders to Pepperell, he wrote, If it be impracticable to think of surprising the town, and you resolve on the surprise of the Grand Battery, and also of the Island Battery, let the party designed for attacking the Grand Battery be first landed, and the next party to cover them. The underfed and underpaid soldiers inside the bastion saw the smoke from the burning storehouses, and heard the English column advancing on their lines, and believed the main force of the New England army was closing in on their position. Believing discretion the better part of valor, they made the decision to fall back on Lewisburg itself under the cover of darkness. When the day dawned, a party of only 13 New Englanders under Colonel Vaughn quietly advanced on the fort. Discovering it empty, a teenaged recruit climbed over the wall and opened the gate for the remainder of the force. Vaughn sent a runner back to Pepperell with a message. May it please your honor to be informed that by the grace of God and the courage of 13 men, I entered the Royal Battery at 9 o'clock and am waiting for reinforcement and a flag. Meanwhile, the French garrison realized their error and sent four whaleboats loaded with regular troops to try to dislodge the Massachusetts men. Vaughn led his tiny detachment to the beach and somehow managed to keep up enough fire to prevent a French landing, even as shells from the island battery began to land around them. Finally, Lieutenant Colonel Bradstreet led a column to relieve Vaughn, and the French had to give up on the idea of retaking the Grand Battery. Before abandoning the Grand Battery, the French had hastily spiked their guns thrown their gunpowder over the walls into the sea, destroyed the wheels of the gun carriages, and done everything in their power to deny the New Englanders the advantage of taking the fort. It was not enough. Within a week, the crafty Massachusetts men had drilled the spikes out of the cannons, brought powder forward from the beachhead, and turned the powerful French guns toward the remaining French strongholds. Pepperell's men now occupied a strong fortification inside the protected harbor, while the French still held the harbor's mouth, with the fortified town of Louisbourg on one side, the island battery situated in the middle, and a lighthouse on the opposite side. Every day, the New Englanders repaired more of the French guns, and they fired them at the island battery and at Louisbourg itself with good effect. While Shirley's bet on taking one of the batteries by land had paid off, it just served to speed up what was otherwise turning into a traditional siege. While the captured guns did their work, the Royal Navy cruised outside the harbor's mouth, preventing any possibility of resupplying Lewisburg. Parties of Massachusetts troops fanned out, burning outlying towns and settlements and taking prisoners. More dug approach trenches to get their guns within reach of the walls of Lewisburg. Every cannon that was brought to bear had to be dragged from the beachhead on a sledge, four miles through swamps and forests, sometimes requiring 200 men rigged with breast straps to move them forward. Though it was hard work, our letter writer inside Lewisburg relates just how effective this strategy was. While they kept up a hot fire on us from the Royal Battery, they established a mortar platform upon the Rabas Height near the Barachois on the west side, and these mortars began to fire on the 16th day after the siege began. They had mortars in all the batteries which they established. The bombs annoyed us greatly. The enemy appeared to wish to press the siege with vigor. They established near the Brissonnet Flats a battery, which began to fire on the 17th, and they were at work upon still another to play directly upon the Dauphin Gate, between the houses of a man named La Roche and of a gunner named Le Seine. 
They did not content themselves with these batteries, although they hammered a breach in our walls, but made new ones to support the first. The marshy flat on the seashore at White Point proved very troublesome and kept them from pushing on their works as they would have wished. To remedy this, they dug several trenches across the flats, and, when these had been drained, they set up the two batteries, which did not begin to fire until some days afterwards. One of them, above the settlement of Martisans, had several pieces of cannon taken partly from the Royal Battery and partly from Flat Point, where the landing was made. Offshore, the English fleet captured nearly every French vessel that approached. This success meant that the besieging New England troops were well outfitted with food and arms that had been meant for their enemies. It also meant that there was suddenly an excess of prize ships and prisoners, which were sent to Boston for safekeeping at the beginning of June. At about the same time, Massachusetts troops began making attempts to capture the island battery. It was a daring and dangerous mission, but if it was successful, it would open the mouth of the harbor to the British fleet. The first attempt got lost in an overnight fog and gave up, but the second crew was not so lucky. French accounts say that the detachment was 500 troops, but Gibson's diary said it was more like 200. Both sides agreed that when the Massachusetts whaleboats attempted a landing at the foot of the walls, the French guns opened up with grape shot. 36 men were killed, and when the sun came up, 118 of the survivors surrendered and were taken inside the walls of Lewisburg. In mid-June, the besieging army built a new fort on the right side of the harbor entrance at the base of a lighthouse that guided ships into the safe channel. This new battery had a commanding view of both the fortified town on the far side of the harbor's mouth and of the island battery directly below it. James Gibson's diary entry shows how effective the new battery was. Friday, June 14th. Last night, the large mortar from Boston was conveyed to the lighthouse battery, which played against the island battery and beat down not only the end of the garrison, but all the chimneys and part of the roof and dismounted several guns. That night, the island battery was abandoned. At about the same time, the Navy began using red-hot shot to start fires inside the town. Both sides knew that the end was drawing near. The New Englanders began building siege ladders to cross the ditches and scale the walls of the Fortress Lewisburg. Inside the walls, the French knew that the ladders might not even be necessary because the artillery had battered wide gaps in the walls. We feared at every moment that the enemy, awaking from their blindness, would press forward to carry the place by assault. Everything invited them to do so. There were two breaches, each about 50 feet wide, one at the Dauphin Gate and the other at the Spur, which is opposite. Major General Roger Walcott, who led the small contingent of Connecticut troops, kept a journal of the siege beginning at the end of May. On June 12th, the day after the officers had a fancy party on Commodore Warren's ship to celebrate the anniversary of King George II's coronation, the Navy began preparing for a final assault. The Commodore sent for Oakham and Moss to line his sides, and that he would come in with the ships at the first fair wind sent the general his line of battle and signals and his instructions to his several captains and that he expected 600 men from the camp to go in with him. Oakham and Moss were tarred fiber typically used to caulk the joints between a ship's planking to make it watertight. By lining the sides of his ships with this spongy material, I think Warren meant to make them more able to withstand fire from the remaining French guns. When his fleet ran through the harbor mouth, they would be carrying 600 Massachusetts men as a landing party. Meanwhile, the garrison at the Grand Battery would board whaleboats and shallops and cross to the foot of the walls with their siege ladders, while the remainder of the army sallied out of their approach trenches and pressed the fortress on the land side. The French were well aware of these preparations. Being nearly out of powder, with ruined walls and low morale, they believed that it would be impossible to simultaneously defend the wide breaches in their defenses and return fire against the British ships once they slipped into the inner harbor. On June 15th, the French garrison sent out a messenger under a flag of truce, as Walcott relates. About seven, Monsieur Laparel came out of the city with a flag of truce, carrying a letter from Monsieur Duchamont that all hostilities might cease till he could call his council and determine upon what terms to deliver up the town. To which he was answered that he should be allowed till eight in the morning, by which time, if they should surrender themselves prisoners of war, they should be used with humanity. The guns fell silent, and the next morning a French officer brought out the terms of surrender, which General Pepperell and Commodore Warren accepted. 
Our French letter writer describes the agreement. The Articles of Capitulation granted by Admiral Warren provided, in effect, that the garrison should march out with arms and flags, which should afterwards be given up, to be restored to the troops after their arrival in France. That, if our own ships did not suffice to transport our persons and effects to France, the English would furnish transport as well as the necessary provisions for the voyage. That all the commissioned officers of the garrison and also the inhabitants of the town should be allowed to reside in their houses and to enjoy the free exercise of their religion without molestation until they could be removed. That the non-commissioned officers and the soldiers should be placed on board British ships immediately after the surrender of the town and the fortress, until they should also be taken to France. That our sick and wounded should receive the same care as those of the enemy. That the commandant of the garrison should have the right to take out two covered wagons, which should be inspected by one officer only to see that there were no munitions of war. That, if any persons of the town or garrison did not wish to be recognized by the English, they should be permitted to go out masked. He also notes that the French considered these terms more than fair under the circumstances, and that if the New Englanders had realized just how desperate the situation inside the walls was, they might not have been so generous. Things moved quickly after the agreement was signed. On the 16th, Warren's troops took over the island battery, and on the 17th, the New England regiments marched through the gates of Lewisburg with their drums beating and flags flying. From that point on, it was simply a matter of loading the French and their supplies onto ships. The English and New English forces seemed stunned by their own success. A British engineer wrote home after the victory, It is the strongest harbor in the West Indies. The French engineer told me that fortifying it had cost two millions of livres, and if we keep it well garrisoned and supplied with stores, I may venture to pronounce it impregnable. It is the key to North America as Gibraltar is to the Mediterranean. By this conquest, the French fishery is entirely ruined. Their trade up the river of St. Lawrence into Canada is commanded, and their homeward-bound Indiamen, who used to put in here on their return for provisions and stores, are deprived of all recourse, so that it is the severest blow that could have been given to the enemy and in the very tenderest part. Almost immediately, even before the ships carrying the French prisoners had left the harbor on June 29th, the New Englanders got to work repairing the damage their guns had caused. If Lewisburg was the Gibraltar of North America, they meant to have it fortified again before anyone could challenge their possession of it. Word of the shocking upset reached Boston on July 3, 1745. That night, lamps were lit in every window to celebrate, and bonfires and fireworks lit up the sky. A Bostonian wrote to William Pepperell, who was still at Lewisburg, describing the celebration. The people of Boston before sunrise were as thick in the streets as on election day, and a pleasing joy visibly sat on every countenance. We had last night the finest illumination I ever witnessed. There was not a house in town, in byway, lane, or alley, but joy might be seen in its windows. The night was also made joyful by bonfires, fireworks, and other tokens of rejoicing. Besides this, an entertainment was given to the people. The 18th of July was observed through the Commonwealth as a day of thanksgiving for this event, and it was universally observed in a manner becoming of a people who saw in it the hand of an overruling providence. On July 18th, Thomas Prince preached a sermon at Old South Church dedicated to Governor William Shirley. For the sovereign God who ruleth by his power forever and does what he pleases among the sons of men has... By a surprising course of providence, let us into a most adventurous enterprise against the French settlements at Cape Breton, and their exceeding strong city of Louisbourg, for warlike power, the pride and terror of these northern seas. And by a wondrous series and happy coincidence of various means, delivered them into our hands. And this, in a most signal manner, is the Lord's doing in the present day, and is truly marvelous in every pious yea, I may say, in every unprejudiced and considerate eye. Everyone involved in planning and leading the attack on Lewisburg seems to have benefited personally. Commodore Peter Warren became Rear Admiral Peter Warren and was granted a knighthood in command of the elite Western Squadron. William Pepperell was the first American to be made a baronet, and he was made a colonel and allowed to raise his own 51st Regiment of Foot. Governor William Shirley was also made a colonel and allowed to raise the 50th Regiment of Foot. Shirley didn't seem to be too concerned with the concept of conflicts of interest. 
Through his commercial interests, he made a tidy fortune by supplying the siege army at Lewisburg. He used this fortune for two pet projects. First, he bought 33 acres of land in rural Roxbury and built himself a grand summer home, which was completed in 1747. You can visit it today as the Shirley Eustace House. For more on the Shirley Eustace House, check out episode 54. Shirley also led the effort to rebuild the run-down Anglican Church in Boston. King's Chapel had been built in 1689, rebuilt and expanded in 1710, and the small wooden chapel was in desperate need of repair by the 1740s. Shirley pledged his own money and led fundraising efforts to rebuild the church in handsome Braintree granite. Almost every portrait of Shirley portrays him with his right hand resting on a plan of the fortifications at Lewisburg. For the rest of his life, the siege of Lewisburg and the expansion of King's Chapel would be among his proudest accomplishments. King's Chapel's new stone chapel building opened on August 21, 1754. Shirley's role in organizing the siege of Lewisburg also led, indirectly, to George Washington's first visit to Boston, almost 20 years before he came here to command the Patriot forces in the Revolutionary War. In 1754, another war broke out between the French and English in North America. This one, which is known in the U.S. as the French and Indian War, and in the rest of the world as the Seven Years' War, would continue until the French were completely banished from the continent. In 1755, Edward Braddock, the commander-in-chief of all British forces in America, was killed in a battle on the Pennsylvania frontier. William Shirley was next in line for the job, but he wasn't that good at it. He led campaigns to Fort Niagara and Fort Oswego before being fired as commander-in-chief and recalled as governor in October of 1756. Before that, though, a young Virginia militia colonel named George Washington came to visit him in Boston. Washington had fought in the First Battle of the War and most of the engagements along the Pennsylvania and Maryland frontier since, including Braddock's defeat. Now, his Virginia forces were garrisoning a fort that was technically located in Maryland, and a lowly Maryland captain was trying to prevent his men from using the supplies at the fort that Virginia had paid for. Washington came to ask Shirley to have the Marylander, Captain Dagworthy, basically back the heck off. Shirley took Washington's side writing in March 1756, I do therefore give it as my opinion that Captain Dagworthy, who now acts under a commission from the governor of the province of Maryland, and where there are no regular troops joined, can only take rank as provincial captain, and of course is under the command of all provincial field officers, and in case it shall happen that Colonel Washington and Captain Dagworthy should join at Fort Cumberland, it is my order that Colonel Washington should take the command. When George Washington came back to Boston in the summer of 1775 to take command of the fledgling Continental Army that was besieging British-held Boston, many New England officers were veterans of an earlier siege. William Prescott, the hero of Bunker Hill who went on to be a Continental Colonel, had been a junior officer at Lewisburg. And Richard Gridley, the chief engineer of the New England Provincial Army who laid out the earthworks on Bunker Hill that Prescott had defended, was also a veteran of Lewisburg, as a speech given on the 150th anniversary of the siege explained. But the remote consequences of this expedition far transcend in importance these immediate ones. It was a school of arms for the colonial troops. Gridley, who planned the parallels and trenches at Lewisburg, also laid out the fortifications of Bunker Hill. Pomeroy, who was a major in one of the Massachusetts regiments, and whose skill as a gunsmith stood him in good stead when he repaired the spike cannon in the Grand Battery, rode in 1775 from Northampton at the news of impending hostilities, strode across the neck at Bunker Hill, and was greeted by Putnam with words which expressed the temper of many a man in the 1745, as well as 30 years after. By God, Pomeroy, you here? A cannon shot would waken you out of your grave. But what was the fate of the fortress at Lewisburg? After the battle, the Massachusetts militia repaired the walls and improved the defenses to once again make it the Gibraltar of North America. The militia would then undertake a costly occupation of the fortress for over two years. When the end of the war came, the British ministry was all too happy to sign a treaty giving Louisbourg back to France in return for concessions from the French in India. There, a tiny English colony called Madras had been captured by the French during the war and it pumped more wealth into the imperial economy than all the North American colonies combined. 
When the British Army once again besieged and defeated Louisbourg in 1758, they would systematically level every gate, wall, and ditch before the war came to an end. If someone in London was willing to give Louisbourg back to the French a second time, they were determined that its strategic value would be completely destroyed first. Instead, the war ended with a complete French defeat, and Cape Breton Island was returned to the British. Today, the site of the fortress at Louisbourg is a Canadian National Historic Site. Perhaps the last salvo in the long struggle between Massachusetts and the French Empire over control of Louisbourg came in 1778. After their humiliating defeat in 1745, the Duc d'Anville was given command of 64 ships and ordered to consign Boston to flames, ravage New England, and waste the British West Indies. By the time he arrived off the coast of Nova Scotia in September 1746, almost 3,000 of his men were sick or dead. Six days later, the Duke died of a stroke, and his second-in-command soon resigned. The fleet returned to France a month later, having accomplished nothing. In 1778, John Adams was serving as a diplomat in France, which was now an ally of the young United States and even of Massachusetts. On April 20th, Adams was invited to have dinner with the Duc Dunville's widow, son, and family. His diary shows that he was no stranger to the surprising and historic implications of the invitation. Dined with the Duchess Danville at the Hotel de Rochefoucauld, with the Duke her son, her daughter, and granddaughter, with a large company of dukes, abbots, and men of science and learning. Recollecting as I did the expedition of the Duke Danville against America, and the great commotion in the Massachusetts, and the marches of the militia to defend Boston when his squadron and army were expected to attack that town, it appeared a very singular thing that I should be very happy in his house at Paris, at a splendid dinner with his family. But greater vicissitudes than this have become more familiar to me since that time. To learn more about the 1745 siege of Lewisburg, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 132. We'll have a whole host of primary sources for you to check out, including Boston Town Records, the diaries we quoted from, and some diaries we didn't use, letters from the New England and Lewisburg sides of the siege, and William Shirley's orders to Pepperell. We'll also have a number of monographs about the siege, and we'll include a link to John Adams' diary entry about his dinner with the Duchess Danville. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might just play it on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. It's one of the best ways to help others find the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. <laughs>